This episode of Deep Dive is sponsored by Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, a valuable advocate in Washington for farmers throughout the Midwest. We are the voice of milk in Congress, with customers, and within communities. Think back to the first dollar you ever made. That rigid, cotton-style, greenish piece of paper with folded corners sporting a portrait of George Washington that was just staring you in the face. I'm sure it gave you a feeling of success and accomplishment. You may have received it after raking up a pile of leaves for your neighbor, mowing the lawn for your mom, finishing chores, or selling the first truck of milk on your newly established dairy operation. Either way, you wanted more of it. When receiving money for work as a child, you figured out the harder you worked, the more money you could earn. But as you grew older, you quickly discovered working to make that dollar is not as easy as you thought. You learned about overhead costs. These are all the expenses it takes to earn that dollar. Things like accounting fees, advertising, insurance, interest, legal fees, labor, rent, repairs, supplies. The list goes on. There's a common mistake when working with dairy producers. Some just focus on milk production or finances, but both must be understood as they work in tandem. Producers must pencil out all expenses from feed costs, transportation, and utilities to get the most out of their milk check. I'm Spencer Chase. And I'm Ben Nully. We'll investigate that and more on AgriPulse Deep Dive on Dairy, Episode 3, Milk Money. Running a dairy operation is not easy, and making a profit is even harder when milk prices are low. Not only is the work labor intensive, but financially, like any other business, you have to make sure everything pencils out. How long have you guys been in business? We've been uh, on our own for 25 years. Meet Bill and Raynell Mueller. From Big Stone City, South Dakota. I met Bill and Raynell at World Dairy Expo. We've been married for 43 years with the dairy and farming. A lot of ups and downs in the dairy industry the last couple of years. Talk to me just some about how you got through some of those challenges with low prices. The year we built our barn, kind of a tough year because we didn't start milking until February of that year. And what year was that? 1994. And we had $5 corn and $8 milk. You do a lot of creative planning to make that work. And as far as just kind of comparing that to now, uh, are you seeing similarities, differences? What's what's the difference between now and then? Fuel prices are higher. Input prices are higher for the crops. Price of milk sometimes, you know, average-wise doesn't always compare. You know, it's about $8 milk and $5 corn again. <laughs> they see it's awfully challenging to make a profit these days. Oh, you got to watch every penny. <laughs> you almost got to put how much across your forehead and hope somebody reads it when they drive in the yard. <laughs> I also ran into Dave Daniels at Expo. He's a member owner of Mighty Grand Dairy, a 575 dairy cow operation near Union Grove, Wisconsin. We put Mighty Grand Dairy together in 1997 by three neighbors getting together and consolidating. Uh, some of the things that we saw in the 90s was that uh, we need to consolidate some of our assets 
because we could see that it would be beneficial for economy of scale to uh, do some purchasing that way. And when you look at growing your crops, you'd have to have a line of machinery uh, that was getting more expensive. So it was a really great thing to do at that point. Uh, and we still continue to feel that it's good. He says making a profit over the next five to 10 years is going to depend on where milk prices go. We do know that on the world market, the the, the amount of milk that's out there is, is slowly either at a stable level or it's dwindling a little bit. Uh, so we really do have to look at a world situation more so than the domestic side of things. Jolene Hadrich is an associate professor in applied economics at the University of Minnesota. Before coming to the University of Minnesota, she worked at land-grant universities in North Dakota and Colorado. But as a native Minnesotan who grew up on a small dairy farm, she couldn't pass up the opportunity to come back and work in the state in 2017. She's proud of her dairy background and helps farmers like Daniels and the Mueller's try to make a profit each year. While she says yes, a lot of them want to end up in the green. Most of the time, they're working towards zero or just trying to break even. The one thing I work with dairy farmers a lot on is figuring out what their break-even price is. And what that means is we want to identify how much it costs to produce that milk on their farm and what they need to receive in a milk price to make zero profit. Obviously, People want to make positive profit, but in order to sort of recover from these price swings that are pretty common in the dairy industry, making sure that you can make zero dollars is a minimal goal. Hadridge says break-even price differs from farm to farm. You know, when we're looking at that break-even, we're really looking at what your input costs are. Um, and, you know, that includes their feed costs. That can be anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of their total cost of production. Um, but then we also have veterinarian expenses, breeding fees, hired labor. One of the costs that has been really increasing over the past few years is hauling and trucking. As processors have changed some of their fee structures, they've passed some of those costs onto the farmers. Um, so that's increased sort of their cost of production, which is affecting that break-even. Um, and those things vary depending on your farm size. We see a a larger amount of hired labor on our larger operations, so those with more than 500 cows, whereas some of our smaller operations with 100 cows are using family labor, so they're not hiring someone from outside that family unit. She says costs are also going to vary by the number of cows you raise. So if we look at the total cost of production for indirect and direct costs or operating and ownership costs, A dairy farm that has 50 to 100 cows, that's going to be about $15.16 per hundredweight compared to our dairy farms with over 500 cows. That is going to be $15.72 per hundredweight. Jolene, so when you look at the cost of production, as far as trends go, are you seeing that trend of the cost of production only increasing as the years go by? Where do you see that going? It's definitely been increasing over time. You know, part of that, a large part of that cost comes from feed. So, you know, as the commodity prices increased 10 years ago, we really saw an increase in our cost of production on our dairy farms. Um, once commodity prices went down, so did that feed cost. But then we saw other prices increase, like that hauling and trucking cost. So, 
you know, there's at least 15 different costs that factor in there. So it's always a sort of like a balancing act. What is different things are increasing and decreasing depending on market conditions. And producers have had to deal with the cost of production roller coaster over the last decade. According to the Department of Agriculture's Economic Research Service, the average cost of production per hundredweight of milk sold in December 2010 was $22.46. Costs of production jumped to $28.47 in September 2012, and it soared to as high as $29.04 in July 2013, then tapered back down to $22.73 in December 2017 all well above the uniform milk price established in the federal milk marketing orders for those years. What in the world is a federal milk marketing order? Well, let me tell you. The federal milk marketing order system was established in the 1930s to help farmers facing low milk prices. It has certain provisions under which dairy processors purchase fresh milk from dairy farmers supplying a marketing area. There are 11 areas across the country. The FMMO sets a minimum milk price determined by the USDA. Dairy farmers are required to receive from milk processors in a milk marketing area. But those are just minimum prices. Hadrich's colleague, Marin Bozic, also an assistant professor in applied economics at the University of Minnesota, you heard from him in episode one, says there is nothing preventing processors to bid up for milk and pay various premiums to attract milk to their plant and away from their competitor's plant when milk is tight. We also want to make sure that the fluid milk plants, beverage milk plants, always have enough milk to process. They may not work on weekends. They may have seasonality when there's a school in session or not school in session, etc. So the, the system is organized in such a way that it allows for balancing. Balancing means that even if on a particular day more milk is used, on dairy farms than is, that is needed uh, immediately for fluid consumption or yogurt consumption, etc., that there is enough capacity out there to convert that milk to storable products that, that, that no milk is wasted. He notes the pricing system is designed to reward processors for keeping the balancing capacity that is not always utilized. But Bozic argues there is a common misconception about milk pricing. One misconception of milk, about milk pricing is that government is keeping milk prices artificially high or artificially low. That is not the case. Ultimately, what does happen is that the um, freely formed prices for basic commodity, dairy commodities, such as cheddar cheese, butter, dry whey, non-fat dry milk powder, so those are commodities. We're not talking about some differentiated you know, horseradish, Havarti, you know, et cetera, product, but basic dairy commodities, their prices are formed on the open market and government surveys, the prices received by major dairy processors every week for those commodities. And those prices are then passed through a formula that determines what everybody hopes is a fair price of milk, given that the market is. Bozic says certainly there are aspects of federal orders that can be improved, simplified, designed in a better way to encourage more risk-taking, but for the most part, he feels they are a valuable institution that helps dairy producers. Dairyman Mike Yeager runs a 350-head dairy operation near Mineral Point, Wisconsin. He's been in the industry since the early 1980s and has seen a lot of changes on what has impacted the cost of production since then. 
We've been told for years we've got to get more efficient, more efficient, more efficient. We're as efficient as we can be. The death loss that occurs in these animals is very minute anymore because we have to do a better job. That, would, to me, would be the, probably the biggest change is that everybody has become, you know, as efficient as we possibly can be and ultimately is potentially part of the issue today of, you know, whether people want to call it overproduction or not. That's what we're being told, and our prices are based upon that. And we can't be expected to do more and more and more and receive pretty much the same prices today as what we were receiving back then. Jaeger signed up for the Dairy Margin Coverage Program for one year. It's the government program designed to trigger payments if the national average income over feed cost margin falls below a farmer-selected coverage level. If you want to know more about that, I suggest you listen to Episode 2. Jaeger argues the true cost of production is not being factored into the formula. It's not the price of soybean meal on the rail in central Illinois. It's the price it costs us to get the soybean meal on our farm. There's several people that are making margins between. We get it on the farm. Same way with the price of hay. Price of hay, dairy quality hay... Here at the Dairy Expo, you talk to a lot of these vendors up here that got it for sale. It's 250 bucks a ton and higher. That's not the value that's being used on dairy quality hay in the, in the equation. So what really needs to be looked at is, you know, just like any other industry, gets to reflect their true cost of production. Why shouldn't we be able to? He fears as the years go by, it's only getting harder and harder for smaller producers like him to stay profitable. Is this really about whether or not the family farm can survive, or is it more about that if we stay where we're at, there's no economic growth, whereas when there's new facilities being built, larger facilities that cost more money, per se, maybe our government looks at as economic growth. But is it really? And as more and more of this food supply gets controlled by fewer people, I think it's going to be a problem. Are you optimistic about profitability moving forward in the dairy industry uh, the next few years? No, I'm not, because it just, and it's very scary. As you can tell, each dairy producer has a different opinion about what the future may look like. But there are some who wonder if the current way dairy farmers get paid is really the right way to do it. Does a system developed in the past still make sense for the future? And if there's going to be any changes, what should they look like? Spencer talks with a dairy market expert on that after this. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, the voice of milk. Edge provides dairy farmers across the Midwest with a strong voice, the voice of milk, in Congress, with customers, and within communities. EDGE is an energetic, forward-thinking organization that represents all dairy farmers equally, recognizing both their differences and similarities. As one of the top dairy cooperatives based on milk volume, EDGE amplifies the voice of farmers. Now more than ever, dairy farmers need to be heard. Join us at voiceofmilk.com. I'm going to reveal some personal information about myself. It's something that makes me a little different from most of the people involved in production agriculture. It's not something I can really control, but to be honest, it's not really something I want to change. And it's something dairy farmers and I have in common. We both get paid twice a month. 
for me, it's my paycheck from Agripulse. For dairy farmers, that check comes from the purchaser of their milk. For most farmers, the paycheck comes when the commodity gets sold. Take your cattle to the sale barn, get a check. Sell a load of corn to the local elevator, get a check. It's a unique system the dairy industry has. And for some, it's part of the reason why they're in it. My dad was a beef and sheep farmer before he became a dairy farmer. And one of the reasons why he moved into dairying is because they got paid twice a month. And at some point, you know, he got married, had six children within eight years, and decided that dairying was going to be a more reliable source of income than, than raising beef and sheep. That's Mary Ledman, a global dairy strategist at Robobank. In farm policy circles, she's known as Dairy Mary, a go-to expert on all things dairy economics and pricing. I sat down with Mary to try and better understand the two-check system, milk marketing orders, all of it. To better understand the pricing system we have now, it's important to keep in mind where the industry came from. Farmers are now paid under what's called product price formulas. But before that... Prior to this product price formulas, we had a competitive pay price that USDA surveyed manufacturers in Minnesota and Wisconsin who purchased grade B milk from dairy farmers. So grade B milk does not have the same licensing requirements that grade A milk does. It's a, um, to be a grade A shipper, you have to have uh, inspections on the farm. Uh, you have to have certain size water heaters. At one point, basing the minimums on grade B milk made sense. But around the turn of the century, the government came to a realization. There wasn't a lot of class B milk out there. So their data set left a little to be desired. So in the year 2000, years of incremental change brought about the system that's still in use today. The foundation was still part of uh, the federal order system uh, founded really in the 1930s, 1940s, where you have class one, you drink, class two, you spoon yogurt and ice cream, class three, you cut cheese and class four, uh, butter and powder you can store forever. It's kind of our joke on it. And, and the farmer receives the weighted average milk price based upon the percent of class one, two, three, four uh, in his marketing area. Now, each of those components, the class one, two, three, and four prices, are based off of the price of, of cheese, butter, nonfat dry milk, and dry whey. By the way, it's important to note something here. In the beef industry, for example, there's a classing system used to sort product based on quality. You've probably unknowingly encountered it when you saw USDA choice beef on sale at the local grocery store. The higher the quality, the better the grading. Prime, select, choice, and so on. In the dairy industry, the classing system is a utilization model. Basically, it's what they're going to do with it, not the quality of the raw product. This is all part of the federal milk marketing order system. And if you're ever looking for some truly baffling reading, just look into how the milk marketing order pricing system works. Heck, if you figure it out, let me know. There's a long-standing joke in the industry that only five people ever really understood it, and four of them are dead. There's decades of history behind the federal orders, as Ledman tells us. So within the dairy federal orders, because there have been fruit and vegetable orders as well, you know, the, the intent was to equalize milk payments to dairy farmers. Um, you could call it, you know, income redistribution or revenue redistribution. Uh, but largely it was also intended to not leave a dairy farmer out. And what I mean by that is that historically, and I mean, you have to go 
you know, over 100 years ago uh, for much of this history. But farmers closer to the city middle always had a market for their milk because it was largely used for fluid consumption. That fluid milk consumption historically takes a dive every summer. Keep in mind, about 7% of the nation's fluid milk consumption happens through the school lunch program. When students are on summer vacation, dairy demand takes a break as well. Nothing a little marketing can't fix. Milk production historically peaks uh, in, in June back in the 1950s. As milk production growth has moved west, that peak is closer to May. But nevertheless, the situation is, is you get, we got June as dairy month to create demand awareness uh, in June because we, you know, it was, uh, we had the onslaught of new milk coming, but yet one of the primary demand channels was uh, slowing down for a couple of months. And during that time frame, dairy farmers outside the inner circle were cut off from a marketplace. So the idea with the federal order system and this pooling is that uh, farmers would have a more of a average price amongst the farmers in a region and that everybody would stay in the pool and not be cut out at different times. The pool grew a little in 2018, too. California dairy farmers opted to join the federal milk marketing order That put them in the same boat as producers throughout the rest of the country operating under the other 10 marketing orders. The jury's still out on just what exactly that will mean in the long term. In the short term, it's significant. Remember last week when we talked to House Ag Committee Chair Colin Peterson? In our interview, he called California's decision the most significant thing that's happened in dairy in the last number of years. How that will all shake out remains to be seen. You know, California produces close to 20% of the nation's milk supply, and they were outside uh, the order with their own program. There were more similarities than not, but the, you know, the dairy, the dairy farmers in California were, were frustrated within their, with their own State Department of Agriculture and their management of their pricing schemes, which they felt were lower than the federal order system unnecessarily. They didn't feel like they were getting the responsiveness for, from their uh, administrators of that program. You know, in hindsight, I think some of them are probably wondering what happened here. With California joining the federal order system, pooling for provisions and their quota system got separated. And the quota value has dropped precipitously since they've come into the federal order system. So the history books have not been written on this case study at this time. But California had a, some uniqueness in their state order. And uh, that uniqueness has gone away for better or worse with the federal order system. At one point, California's dairy quota system was worth over $1 billion. Quota selling prices were usually between four and $500 per pound. Now, the California Department of Food and Agriculture says that's dropped to 230. Like Mary said, quota value is dropping precipitously. Now comes the part of the podcast where we talk about people being frustrated. Frustrated with how hard it can be to make money as a dairy farmer. Frustrated with consumers who might not understand how alfalfa becomes milk. Just frustrated. And occasionally, that leads to a look at the way things are including people wanting to take another look at the federal milk marketing order system. You hear statements about them being um, balkanist, convoluted, unnecessary. Um, I would caution the industry to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Historically, the federal orders have been there to help maintain orderly marketing 
but if you ask somebody what that is, there's not a really good uh, good definition. And if you say, well, what's disorderly marketing? Well, I don't know, but when I see it, I'll let you know kind of thing. Ask any farmer in any region of the country producing any kind of commodity what changes they'd like to make to the policies they follow, and you'll probably get an earful. Ask a dairy farmer what they'd like to change about a marketing order, and they just might pour you a glass of milk and fill you in. Some of the changes dairy farmers support could be seen at the American Farm Bureau's annual convention. There, members changed the group's policy to support developing an improved method to determine Class 1 prices that better reflect local market conditions and provide more appropriate economic incentives to fluid milk producers and processors. They also support using all beverage-style products using milk or dairy products as an ingredient in the Class 1 formula. As for the National Milk Producers Federation, they've got some ideas of their own. They've appointed a task force to study and make recommendations to address issues affecting the price of cheese and other dairy products, a spokesman tells us. But, they add, they think the Federal Milk Marketing Order Program has served as an effective stabilizing force for nearly a century. Even if she's cautious about reworking the federal orders, Mary says the current pricing model might be due for another look. I think it's harder to justify today um, this class one premium. Uh, I know in my role as the global dairy strategist with Rabobank and I talk to dairy farmers and processors around the world and um, even in in companies that look to come to the United States to put in facilities and uh, manufacture dairy products and you start talking to them about these different classes of milk and their eyes just kind of glaze over and it's kind of like, but milk is milk, right? Milk is milk. And it's, well, yes, but. So we have a system that was really developed during a different era. In that era, uh, we had different consumption patterns. We had different technology when it comes to transportation, refrigeration. And I think the time has come for us to reevaluate it. Before we go, we need to talk about one last little thing that has control over about 90% of the nation's milk. Cooperatives. Co-ops aren't really a uniquely rural thing, but rural America uses the business model with way more frequency than urban America. Many farms are powered by electricity from rural electric cooperatives. Many producers haul their grain to a cooperative elevator. Almost all the dairies in the country, though, market their milk through a cooperative. The business model is relatively simple. Co-op members are also the co-op owners. They join together to pool their resources. In dairy, those pooled resources might pay for marketing a greater quantity of milk, you know, their strength in numbers, or building out processing capacity to cut out the middleman and sell the products themselves. And some of these co-ops get big, like really big. In fact, of the three largest cooperatives in the country, two of them, Land O'Lakes and Dairy Farmers of America, are dairy co-ops with a combined 2018 revenue of about $28.5 billion dollars. But all the pricing models and marketing orders and spreadsheets and calculations are null and void if nobody does the work at the farm level. And just who does that work might be the biggest problem facing the dairy industry today. We'll talk more about that next week on AgriPulse Deep Dive.